Teachers Care Society, the podcast that talks about all news and development in the educational field. We have a good show for you today as I'm joined by Julia Italiano, a second grade self-contained teacher from Memphis, as we'll be discussing how to cater social emotional needs using different sensory system strategies. And we'll also be discussing how social emotional learning helps students meet their goals. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Today's guest is Julia Italiano. Um, and well, first of all, welcome to the show. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, nice to have you. Uh, hopefully this New Year's a lot better than last year. <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you have, well, first of all, you have a website and so it's, it's called Hi Miss I, right? Is, is that what it's called? That is the greeting I get every morning. So that was the natural name that came up. Oh, okay. 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 Came from the <laughs> students then. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I know you're originally from Ohio and then I think you obtained your BS in uh, middle childhood education with concentrations in language and social studies, right? Right. From Ohio State. Um, I actually grew up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago and then went to Ohio State um, and stayed in Columbus all of college and definitely adopted Ohio as home in the last four years that I lived there. So why the big move then? I moved to Memphis with Teach for America two years ago. It was just a great TFA location. And now I'm going to be moving to Denver to continue teaching when my commitment is up this summer. Okay. Okay. So for those who don't know, can you tell me a little bit more about like Teach for America from what I understand? And that's only because they did a seminar in my university, but I think they're like a corpse member. Then I think you're usually working disadvantaged communities. Uh, I think their MO is like fighting educational uh, inequalities. And like you said, I think it's a two-year commitment. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for sure. Treats for America kind of came on my radar because my good friend Sarah was an ambassador for them after being a, offered a position in the program before a senior year of college. I didn't know much about it until then either. They had come to Ohio State a few times. Um, but the program that I was in at Ohio State was focused on urban education. And my experience in that program is really what introduced me to how problematic and marginalizing the systems in our country have been to these historically disenfranchised communities. And so to TFA is an organization that is focused on ending educational inequity by putting leaders in the classroom and working toward changing the systems that impact these communities. And so that really aligned with my experience at Ohio State and where I found myself heading as an educator. And uh, I was also looking for a way to obtain my elementary licensure. And TFA made this a much more straightforward process for me than if I had gone about it on my own. Uh, I went to school for middle childhood education, like you said, and was licensed originally in fourth through ninth grade in social studies. Uh, but I discovered early on in college that my passion was in primary grades, but it was too late to switch my major. So I kind of just went through that, but always knew I'd be looking for an opportunity in an elementary classroom after graduation. And so TFA was just kind of like the come together for all of that. Oh, okay. That's nice. Are you still friends with, uh, was it, you said Sarah? Yes, I am still friends with her. We, we chat all the time. She's doing TFA in St. Louis. 
Oh, okay. All right. So again, a little information that I do know is I heard their support system is pretty good. I think you're paired with a, you know, either a coach or a mentor. Is, is that, is that right? Yes. So you have a different coach each of your two years in the program. Um, I will definitely say that each core member has a different experience because there's a lot of variation from region to region and coach to coach with like their personality meshing with yours. I personally have had a really positive experience um, with both of my TFA coaches. My coach this year is super laid back, which is exactly what I needed during all this (laughs) pandemic stress. And my coach last year, like I would consider a friend and I want to keep in touch with post TFA. It's just cool because um, it's pretty unique for a teacher to have a coach come into your classroom with no other intention than just making you a better teacher. Um, Support from admin or coaches at your school always has, you know, this ulterior layer that can create more stressful feedback experience that feels less genuine when scores are attached to it. So I really appreciated having someone there to sort of be my cheerleader and just make me better every time she came into my classroom last year. Oh, that's nice. Now, obviously, I mean, besides one of the selling points of this uh, program, like, you know, the mentoring whole coaching experience, I think it's the professional development. So I, I know they have like summer retreats and I think it was a virtual one because of, of COVID, right? Yes, this year it was virtual. Um, but yeah, I heard the, the, the summer retreats are nice because I think they provide what, room and board and, and all that, right? Yeah, I actually didn't take advantage of the room and board during the Summer Institute because I already had a living situation. Um, but they did provide some grants and loans in lieu of the living the room and board, sorry, to cover my living expenses before I was, you know, able to get a paycheck from my school. Um, I will say the summer retreat was a very different experience for me personally than I think it was for most of my peers, just because I majored in education and I already had a license. And for most of the other core members, everything about teaching was brand new. So most of the Institute experience was kind of like a crash course of everything I had spent four years working on in college. So I found it a little tedious just with that um, and less impactful having already had a license. But with that being said, I definitely felt less nervous for my first day of school because I had already had some failures and successes with my summer school kids through the TFA Institute. Um, So it just helped me have like a much clearer idea of what I wanted and didn't want in my classroom at the start of the year than I think I would have just coming straight out of college. Ah, so you were, I guess you were the expert or kind of like the big sister uh, in the program then? (laughs) Sometimes it felt like that, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Would you, I mean, once all this is done, um, would you want to be a mentor or coach yourself in the future? You know, I love being in the classroom too much at this point to really consider that. Um, I am a mentor to a first year teacher right now, and I've really enjoyed that experience. So I'm not opposed to a coaching role like that in the future. But right now, I just can't imagine leaving the classroom. Mm, okay. And then I know this is a little bit off topic, but I guess for, you know, for those uh, are thinking about, you know, getting their, their license or teaching license, and I guess they're stressed about money. Does, is there good options for that? Like the grants or, or scholarships for the TFA? Yeah, it was definitely stressful not having a source of income over the summer and, you know, working 40 hour weeks still during the Institute, but they did provide me with uh, a loan with no interest. And then some grants you can apply for and they were pretty generous with that. So I was able to make it work. Um, the salaries for Teach for America vary from region to region and Memphis um, had a really competitive salary. So that's part of what drew me here because it was kind of a random place for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's, that's, that's a pretty cool experience. Um, 
right now are you are you virtual in person or hybrid which one are you we have been virtual all year um it's definitely been a roller coaster for me and my kids but we are thriving the best we can right now uh i'm really just in awe of my students and how adaptable they have been throughout this experience they're doing things you know that no other seven-year-olds before them have done and it's really cool to watch um when i think about where we were from the first day of school to how our days are now it's just crazy because they're like pros at sharing their screens and splitting their screens and using all these different platforms and helping each other or me even how to do things. So that growth has been the highlight, one of the only highlights of virtual <laughs> education for me. Um, definitely hard, much more time consuming to plan for and much more draining. So I'm really looking forward to getting back, but there have definitely been those silver linings that are just getting us through it. Yeah. But uh, for me, I have the, the little, little ones, like the TK ones. And for uh -huh. some of them, this is their first school experience. So I cannot only, imagine. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I, I feel so much for like all the kindergarten teachers right now, because we're talking about returning hybrid and these kids, I'm like, they haven't been in school since March. And the kindergarten teachers are like, these kids haven't been in school ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's, there's definitely a lot, a lot of respect for kinder and younger. That's that's the boat I'm in. So again, the, and so know, when we do return, I, I have to teach you know the classroom etiquette. You know how to putting their backpacks away or you know right. uh, lining up and you know waiting their turn, etc. And so that's <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that's gonna. I guess I gotta start from scratch. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's part of that. You just like teaching them how to be a student. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting when we come back. Uh, I'll definitely, I don't know. I feel like I'll start from scratch. Um, yes. It's going to have to be that way. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, since, you know, you have a website and again, it's what Miss I, right? Is that what it's called? Hey, hey Miss I, is that, what, is that what it's called? Hi, Miss I. Yeah. Pretty catchy. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so you know, taking a quick look at your website. So I gotta say it's pretty well organized. Um, all the different sections you have. I think you have like a resource section and then you have like various different categories that you, that you cover like math writing and, uh, even have a growth mindset, which is pretty cool. Um, and then Thanks. you also have a suggestion uh, area and then you have a TPT website as well. And I think you also take requests on, uh, I think in your website, right. Based on what yes. resources other teachers need, right. Do, do you yes. get a lot of requests or is it, what's the most popular request you get? Um, it's definitely slower, but I get a lot of, uh, writing project requests and that's usually my best selling resources on TPT are my writing projects just cause I have a lot of them and that's something I'm really passionate about in the classroom. So the few that I've had uh, have been like that. I also love getting suggestions from like people at my school or if someone needs something, I'll just make it and then I'll be able to upload it to TPT later. Mm, I see. Do your, uh, do your teacher friends that they know about your website? Yeah, um, we we are definitely each other's cheerleaders. So a lot of my coworkers uh, started an Instagram, a teacher Instagram as well. So it's been fun to kind of be on this journey together, if you will. Uh, but they're very, very supportive of all of my resources. And um, I try to share everything with them as much as I can. Uh, it's a, I don't know how long it's been since, um, you know, you finished your credential program, but 
back when I was in it, I guess like the big deal was using like social media as a kind of reaching out in professional development. And so they really pushed for us to you know, create a professional Twitter account, a professional uh, Instagram account to really get in contact with some teachers. And I think it's really neat what to, it evolved into. Yeah, absolutely. In college. Um, so I graduated two years ago and my professor, she was amazing and so creative and we had a professional Twitter. So part of our weekly assignment, we would have to engage in like these, um, Twitter chats that were national, um, teachers on Twitter talking about various topics. And for her class, it was social studies in particular, but that kind of showed me how, much I could get from the teacher world of social media. And I started my Instagram this year. It was kind of like a product of quarantine, I guess. Um, (laughs) But just the community I feel like I've gotten from that has made this crazy year so much more easier because I feel like I have, you know, a community of teachers that I can kind of look to for inspiration and support. And everyone's so, so friendly on Instagram and has been super supportive. So I really like getting into this world. Yeah. It's nice to, you know, you normally wouldn't get the chance to interact with teachers across the street, a state, or even, you know, across the border, like in Canada or et cetera. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a nice way. And I know, I mean, I don't like seeing a teacher struggle, but it's nice knowing (laughs) that there are other teachers struggling with me. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially this year where I feel like everyone's just kind of drowning. It's nice to have that acknowledged at least so you don't feel like you're so alone in this um it's yeah the struggle sometimes you need you need companions in the struggle yeah so i will say that's you know that's a nice part of you know for those teachers who don't have a don't don't use social media to network it's a you know it's a great way to reach out and collaborate with other teachers so absolutely i definitely recommend it so for your free time, I know you describe yourself as <laughs> obsessing over margins and fonts <laughs> and uh, PowerPoint. I, I'm assuming that's when you're creating stuff for teacher paid teachers or you know, instruction. But right. uh, I guess that just means you're detail oriented and I guess you're really into the whole creative process or both or in, what's this obsession about then? <laughs> <laughs> I would say both. Um, you know, my family and friends would probably not describe me as detail oriented in other realms of my life, but I'm detail oriented to a fault with things like my resources, um, which means I just spend way too much time trying to make them perfect. But I'm also super into the process of creating. So making resources has truly become my hobby. So it kind of balances out. I get the creativity outlet and the perfectionist. And I've been doing this for, for a few years now since college. Um, but I just launched my website this year and that's sort of thanks to quarantine. Um, but yeah, every resource that I sell on my TPT, I also use with my own kids, which is great because I can see any adjustments a resource might need before putting it out for others. And that's where the obsession comes in. Um, kind of like a lot of trial and error. Mm, okay. So you're a, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you're a pretty creative person. Would you ever consider, I guess, writing a book? It's funny because when I was a kid, my dream job was to be an author. Um, And I kind of haven't let that go. Writing is for sure a passion of mine. So we'll see, perhaps. Mm, Okay. Um, I'm kind of getting like a little dose of that with the blog getting back into writing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. Yeah. Again, you're, you know, it's a good read on your blog. And I know, so you said on your teacher, uh, teachers pay teachers, you get a lot of requests for what literacy, right? Literacy resources. Yeah. I'm super passionate about, um, the writing process and the writing projects are definitely my most downloaded resources. Um, 
I put out a lot of these because it's just really important for me at this age because it develops their literacy and then prepares them to be strong communicators as they go into higher grades. Um, so the writing process is actually ingrained into my classroom routines and centers, you know, in a typical year when we're in person because we do a different stage of the process every day. So after the first few projects throughout the year, my kids can really guide their own writing pretty independently. And um, as they get the hang of brainstorming and planning, editing, revising, all that, um, and it's also important to me to make writing engaging for my kids or, you know, resemble real life writing experiences because I loved writing as a kid, but I know that that isn't typically the case, especially at this age. So I really just try to make them excited about writing by making these projects that are fun for them and are something that they can be proud of because they put two, five days of work into it. Mm, yeah. I mean, what better way to show your passion for writing than, uh, actually writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's on the horizon. <laughs> So last year, uh, in December, you actually had lots of virtual movie nights and I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I think you played some classics like the Grinch and Santa Claus and elf. How did this idea come about? Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to continue doing this at least throughout this school year because it's just had such a positive impact on my classroom culture. Um, the thing that people say about my class when they come in to observe is just how obvious it is that my kids care about each other and are motivated by teamwork and just being positive forces to each other. And that's, I think really because of the ways we build our class culture outside of the school day this year. Um, the movie nights are great because it doesn't really put any burden on me while I keep my camera off and just screen share a movie from Disney plus or something, uh, while I do things around the house or work on my computer and they have so much fun watching together. It's so cute. They all keep their cameras on and just like comment about the movie in the chat box. So they'll be like, Whoa. And it's definitely like a little social experience in their week. Um, but I came up with this cause I also read a bedtime story to my kids every Wednesday night. And that takes like 10 minutes and they were obsessed with that. And I love the impact that this had on our class culture. So I wanted to add more events for them, but I wasn't really having the energy or time to commit to more on camera time after school hours. So the weekly movie nights has just been perfect because it's really about them spending time with peers and the parents love it because they're occupied for a few more hours and then they have something social to look forward to every week. So just, it's super simple. I highly recommend anyone who's virtual or not virtual, just doing it even once a month. Um, I have a free resource if anyone wants it on my TBT to get that started. Oh, okay. That's good. Do you ever have movie nights just on your own? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm like binging something on Netflix in the background while they're watching a movie. Um, and I'll just pop in every once in a while and be like, whoa. And yeah, I'm watching my own thing. <laughs> so. Uh, that's funny. Um, I know, I know something else you use in the classroom. It's, uh, it's called what's the novel effect, right? And I, I believe it's adding sound effects and to character narrations. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. Novel effect is awesome. I actually, this is one of those things I discovered through other teachers on Instagram, um, who are using it to, you know, enhance the read aloud experience. Something that I always am passionate about making reading fun, but especially this year when we're all so disconnected because uh, we're virtual. So basically if a book is on novel effect, it times sound effects with your reading so that as you read, the kids can hear like subtle music or sounds to match what you're reading. And we used it with the Polar Express in December and it just 
made the read aloud so magical. The kids could hear the bells and the train and it just brought the text to life in a whole different way. So I'm definitely planning to use it more often. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there's another reason why you should uh, network with teachers on social media. <laughs> yes, absolutely. They have the best ideas. <laughs> and that's how you survive as a teacher is stealing other people's awesome ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no need to, you know, there's always no need to start from scratch all the time. Right. Yeah. Don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, uh, let's jump into our <clears throat> first topic and that's uh, social emotional learning. <clears throat> um, so basically, you know, social emotional learning is supposed to help students uh, you know, meet their goals. And, uh, you know, sadly, I do need to you know, point out that it's often not associated with a special education. Um, and even, you know, most public schools as of right now, I think there's only a few states. I think it's either three or four that have standards for social emotional learning. And for the life of me, I can't remember all of them, but I know one of them is Illinois and the other one is Kansas. Uh, okay. And so basically, you know, the studies on uh, social emotional learning uh, is supposed to have these positive outcomes. And, you know, there aren't too many studies that focus with uh, SEL on special needs. And so basically what social emotional learning is, is this whole process through which children and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills and attitudes to help develop their identities, manage emotions, achieve uh, personal and collective goals. Um, And it's also important to note how, uh, you know, we feel and show empathy for others and establish and maintain, you know, supportive relationships and basically make responsible and caring decisions. So, um, so as you can see, so how we feel and basically there are I guess, five core, uh, components of a SEL. First one is self-awareness. Second one is self-management. Third one is social awareness. Um, then we have relationship skills and responsible decision-making. So more often than not, people read, uh, you know, about disability of a student and I guess they automatically make an assumption saying, Oh, they don't, you know, they don't have these social emotional learning and competency. And, and so, for example, just because, you know, one student qualifies under one of the 13 categories of uh, IDA or whether it's, you know, emotional disturbance, um, then, you know, people make the assumption, oh, the student has poor social emotional uh, competencies. Uh, and same thing for a student, if they get identified with a intellectual disability, you know, I shouldn't uh, make assumptions on their strengths or whatever challenges they may have based on that alone. Um, you know, a child is so much more than this. This is more than just a label or, or just these uh, labels that we put on them. And so for me, I would definitely suggest reading or when you, whenever you get your new students, reading up on the IEPs and reports and all their progress and, you know, the part where you get family input as well, um, just to get to know your students, um, especially if you have the opportunity, see if you can reach out to the previous teacher. Um, that's what I did. I was new to my school and I was able to reach out to the previous teacher and really get to know my students. Cause again, I'm, I'm virtual. And so it's, I'm, I'm meeting them through a computer scheme for the first time. So right. I really, 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 really wanted to get as much information as I can, not just from a reported piece of paper, but from you know, another person who's in the classroom, you know, six hours a day with them. Right. Um, and so, you know, taking that information, I really wanted to create something special, like a warm, welcoming environment, particularly for our uh, support or morning circle. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in like nature versus nurture and that the family and the home environment play a huge role in the SEL. Um, 
for you, how do you, how do you find out about your students, like backgrounds and like home environment and like all, all that information? Yeah, this is so important. And like you said, I definitely relied on my, um, my friend's that were had most of my students last year um, in first grade. I relied on them a lot getting started um, because I knew a lot of my kids from last year, you know, because I did bus duty and saw them in the hallways and some of them would come to me when they got in trouble or something like that. So I, I kind of had this little relationship with a lot of my incoming students already that made it really great to start off. But then I definitely went to the previous teachers to kind of get a gauge on what I needed to like anticipate what needs I would need to anticipate what the family dynamics were like. And that kind of helped me approach the family conversations. Um, getting some of the families has actually been the one thing that has been easier in virtual learning, I would say, um, just because we're in the homes of the students, you know, all day, every day and getting a peek into their lives. And it just kind of helps to provide some insight on what their structure and routines and social emotional interactions are like at home. Um, the more I know about this, the more I know how to approach social emotional well-being with this child, because it's a very individualized practice. And outside of the unique look into students' lives that virtual school has provided, it's always a priority of mine to, you know, build strong relationships with students, families and siblings and just kind of all get on the same team. Um, a lot of information that I get about a student's environment comes from frequent conversations with the parents or checking in on their siblings, seeing how they're doing. I use uh, Class Dojo a lot to contact my parents because it's just quick, easy. It has a translation feature that makes communicating seamless with my Spanish speaking family. So it just makes it super easy because it's all on our phones. Um, but I also encourage the kids to come up to visit me at the school, you know, one on one whenever they want. And parents just appreciate knowing that they can always come to me if they choose to. I think I've met every student in person at least one time. Um, including the kids I didn't know last year. So I also try to do positive phone calls that way when behaviors do arise, it's like they trust that I'm coming from a good place. And, you know, I try to approach it collaboratively with the parents rather than calling to simply report a behavior. I call for suggestions for how they might approach this at home or things that help motivate that particular student, um, reasons that might be leading to this behavior. And it's really in these conversations that I learn the most about where students are at in their social emotional development and how I can support those practices at school. Mm, I like it. I like the, you know, the positive phone calls. I mean, not every phone call has to be negative. Right. Like, uh, so. I tried, I'm, I always tell my kids on their cheerleaders. So I'm like calling home, especially with the ones that, you know, I have some more struggles with. Um, <laughs> like they could do anything. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm calling your mom. You're amazing. And they love that. So yeah, that's nice. And, uh, same, same thing, like you said, it's, uh, I think the distance learning has made me have a closer connection with the families. Um, just cause, mm -hmm. uh, well, just for my age group, they, they require an adult to help them navigate certain parts of the, the virtual classroom. And so, um, right, right. I know they're definitely always there now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, a uh, that, that, that's one of the, the positives. And ever since we started off, uh, you know, distance learning, um, I started off by again, looking off at the, the documents and then I tried getting in contact with the families to basically review because, you know, a lot can happen in the summer. And I, I really wanted to get the most updated information. Like for example, is you know, Stacy still potty train or you know, is Daisy still get upset when this happens or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So I truly try and get the most updated 
to the information, uh, just trying to get in the groove for the families, like the first whole month. Um, because again, a lot, a lot of stuff can happen. And for example, some of my, uh, students, they, whether it's, a, they got a new family member in the household. And so, you know, that's a big change all of a sudden. Right. Um, you can even be something, uh, like getting a pet or you know, getting, you know, moving to a new house or, you know, maybe somebody, you know, not working as much. So I was trying to get as much information as I can, because it was just going to have a big influence. Like going back to the example, like, can you imagine being an only child and all of a sudden you have <laughs> your big brother now? <laughs> yeah. It's a big change. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, that's, that's important for me. And then all of a sudden, I mean, months now into this uh, distance learning, <laughs> I find the little brother is joining my classroom as well <laughs> for our music <laughs> oh, and movement always. time. Always, yeah. <laughs> I love but, yeah. the little siblings in the background. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think earlier you said you have a, you met at least all your students at least once. And I, from, you know, from what it seems, it seems like you have a great bond with your students. And I think back in December, you kind of had like a mini celebration with that. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I definitely have an extremely close bond with my kids this year. Um, it's sort of the opposite of what you might expect considering we're just so much more distant than ever before. But I think that this experience has just really bonded us together in a unique way because we're so much more involved in each other's personal lives by literally being in each other's homes all day. Um, but yeah, I just, I make it a point to create these bonding moments for my kids outside of academics by having the movie nights and the bedtime stories, and then these meetups every once in a while. Um, just cause it's been really hard on all of us to be apart. And, you know, I'm trying to forge opportunities for my kids to get together because many of them don't get interactions with peers anymore. If they're an only child or if they've only seen their siblings since March, you know, so, we had a masked meetup at a park here in Memphis and my kids had a blast. Um, it was so cute that seeing them play together for the first time. <laughs> and then, yeah, in December, we, I had like a little holiday get together. Um, my admin was supportive of it in our new school cafeteria and they were just so excited to see each other, but also to be at school really for the first time since March was just really special to them. Um, they got to see the classroom and just, you know, feel like normal kids for a second. I had a couple of different stations for them, similar to what I would have done prior to COVID for our classroom party. We had, you know, hot cocoa, a snack table, a station for them to write letters to Santa, a coloring station, tree decorating station. Um, all of my kids celebrate Christmas. So it was very heavy on the Christmas theme. And a lot of them wore, you know, the sweaters. And but it was just a really joyous day for all of us. Wow, wow, wow. Is there a is school hiring? That sounds like a, a fun time. <laughs> it was a blast. It was just me and like probably 15 of my kids and their siblings and uh, some parents, but the parents were having so much fun too. Like most of the coloring station was parents sitting there coloring. Just, it was so funny just watching the like dad sitting there coloring um, while the kids kind of ran around. But yeah, it was super fun. <laughs> yeah. It's always funny when you have activities prep for the students, but then you find out the adults <laughs> yeah. more into it. <laughs> I was cracking up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, um, before COVID, I had a similar like back to school night. Um, and there was supposed to be like this game activity for the students, but the adults, they, I guess they, they were really competitive. So they joined, That's on, so funny. They, they joined <laughs> on in and they were like, uh, yeah, it got pretty, uh, it got pretty vicious with the, with the competitiveness. <laughs> See, that makes it more fun for everybody. I love when the adults get in on it. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. They even sneak in some adult jokes, even uh, <laughs> that go over the kids' heads. Yeah. A nice <laughs> eye roll every once in a while yeah, to yeah. a mom. Yeah. And they <laughs> eye roll back. It's so, so classic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I know that you and I both know that uh, children change their minds all the time. And I mean, I still change my mind all the time too, as adults and it can be hard or difficult keeping up with all these changes. And I, I try my best. Like one of the benefits of distance learning is that constant communication with the families. And I try and keep like a interest, interest inventory of whatever it is the kids like. And you know, one, one day they might like the Gruffalo. Um, and the next day they're replaced by Peppa the pig. Um, and I, I think the families are keeping me in communication because, um, certain of my students, they might have a little bit of a hard time, uh, communicating. That's, that's part of their goals trying to uh, communicate better. Um, but again, if I, you know, if, if I don't have that communication with the families, you know, if I don't know that, Oh, maybe just they, they're having an off day cause they didn't eat breakfast or didn't get enough sleep. Um, and they let me know that then that's great. Otherwise I think something else I'm like, Oh, maybe I'm just, <laughs> maybe I'm just not a good teacher today. Or maybe I just don't you know, have their interest. So it's nice having that communication from the families. Um, because yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and change it up. If you know, getting that feedback, it'll, I'll change the style. Maybe they don't like this presentation or maybe they don't like the audio or the videos or the visuals I provide. So again, I'm, I'm very grateful for families keeping me in the loop um, to see what it is their students, you know, or their interests are. For example, when I have my students, you know, what are you working for? We can provide, you know, an, an activity or an object that they want to work for and you know, to really help um, motivate them. But yes. for you, uh, how, do you, how do you keep in touch with your families and like what it is their, their students are interested at that time? Yeah, my kids are a little bit older, so they definitely um, like to let me know what their interests are. Usually at really bad times, they'll interrupt and be like, I'm watching like Beyblades this week or something that I'm like, oh, cool. But I would just say talking with my students about their interests daily is really how I stay in the loop with that and what's important to them or what's interesting to them. Um, if there seems to be a topic of interest that I can incorporate into our day somehow, then I find ways to fit that into learning opportunities. Uh, this is especially true when it comes to selecting mentor texts in reading for example, one of my students is so fascinated by Mae Jemison. Um, she did a the Wax Museum project uh, that I'm doing this year with my kids. She did it last year in first grade on Mae Jemison. And so she always is throwing fun facts at me about Mae Jemison. So one day she showed me after school that she had a picture book of Mae Jemison. And I happened to have that same one. So we used it for a class lesson with summarizing that week. And she was so excited that we were talking about, you know, her hero. Um, or last week, a lot of my boys are into basketball. And so we did compare and contrast last week. And our, our mentor texts were two articles, one about LeBron and one about Steph Curry. And they were so into it. Um, so that was really fun. But also my students answer a question of the day every morning when they first log in. And it's usually something like goofy and it just helps us get to know each other and relate to each other and see what we have in common. Um, simple questions about like favorites or least favorites, but I always make them explain why they have that opinion. And then that usually lets us all get to see into that student's perspective a little more. Um, we also practice accountable talk every morning in our morning meeting. So one student will share their opinion about the question of the day, and then they take turns using talking stems to agree or respectfully disagree with each other. This is super fun because they love to disagree on things like Roblox versus Fortnite or Kit Kats versus Twix and 
it always helps them make connections with peers who they may not have realized they had something in common with. But yeah, they love to disagree. It's so fun. <laughs> I like that. I like how you have that, uh, you know, the morning talks or those, uh, you ask them, oh, what's your favorite, I guess, you know, candy. That's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it doesn't always have to start off with, all right, solve this uh, long division problem. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. know just, you can start off. Kind of eases us into the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. It's, it's good. It doesn't, oh, you don't always, always have to start like straight with academics um, in the morning. Right. Yeah. Morning so, is a great culture building time for us. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, th- I mean, there, you know, there are certain things that don't get outdated. Like for example, I, I know dinosaurs are always going to be popular and animals are always going to be popular. <laughs> um, so always, always have those in my uh, you know back pocket. But, yes. uh, you know, let's go into, you know, w- w- with self-management. So, you know, w- one of the big takeaways for self-management is, uh, you know, regulating our, our emotions and behaviors. So, um, you know, if we have students being able to do this and manage their stress and impulses and challenging situations, then that's great. And you know, we want them to work on their self-motivation and self-discipline. Um, and then I guess we're going to talk a little bit of science here, but the first uh, sensory system is the <laughs> vestibular, which basically is our movement sense. Uh, kind of like when like an infant likes that rocking uh, back and forth motion, um, either in the arms of an adult or they're sitting on an adult's lap and the adult is, you know, moving their knee up and down. So that kind of goes back to the whole fetal sensory development form that we have, uh, from the moment conception when the the infant is in in the the mother's womb. So that swaying motion, you know, the art and and the adult's arm mimics that same motion again, where they're in the womb. Um, and so I have students that need to be stimulated through movement. Uh, it, they're constantly fidgeting. They need to be doing something with their hands. They need to be doing something with their feet. Uh, and so mm-hmm. in the classroom, I have like here, here's a yoga ball. Here's a bun- bungee chair. Or I have them have a, a trampoline that has a bar and they just hold onto the bar of the trampoline. They start jumping in down, up and down. Um, I don't have one of these, but when we go back in classroom, I do want to get these, but I think they're like this egg chair, uh, an edge egg chair swing. Um, or even yes, this, this I've seen cushion. That. yeah, I want to get those, but they're kind of pricey, but yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, I just, I, for the students that just need that movement, I, whether it's, they like to kick, uh, there's also, you can put, I think there's called these stability bands you put at the bottom of the chair and then mm-hmm. basically just a really, the really strong rubber band, like this elastic band. And then they can, they can bounce all they want on, on the, they can move their feet up and down. They want on that, um, or how people use yoga chairs and they put the yoga chair, the yoga ball in a crate. And so the student can roll around as much as they can. So and I use these strategies to really help calm the students and, uh, basically, you know, help, uh, target those, that sensory that, that they need to be moving. Um, for you, what do you do for your students that need that constant movement to, to help with cope with that self-management? <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously in person, this looks really different than it does right now. Movement was a super important part of our classroom activities when we were in person, because I myself operate that way. I can't really <laughs> sit still for the same in the same spot for too long. And so I feel like my kids last year were extremely movement oriented. Um, They had the choice to pretty much work in all scenarios in a spot that was beneficial to their learning. So if that meant laying on their stomach on the carpet or bouncing a little bit on a yoga ball or sitting crisscross in my library or standing up at a table, it didn't really matter to me as long as they were doing what they needed to be doing. And they all knew that and respected that. And this takes a lot of structured routine practice at the beginning of the year, I would say. Um, I run pretty 
height shift in my classroom. So <laughs> my kids knew that, uh, if they took advantage of that privilege to work where they chose, it was instantly gone. So we never really had any issues with it. Um, and my students really recognized and valued the privilege to make that choice for themselves. So that's definitely one way I would incorporate movement is just anytime we started something new, they had the opportunity to work somewhere that was going to work for them. I also had those kick bands you were describing, uh, for the seats of my more fidgety ones. Um, there were about <laughs> five students who had those on their chairs and, that was something that they didn't necessarily have a choice over. Um, when students who like, I couldn't have a student could be like, well, I want a band. And I would just kind of explain it why they didn't have one. I would remind them that we all need different things to feel supported in our learning and remind them of a time where I did something for them that didn't necessarily apply to the whole class. Um, because there were some kids where that, you know, would be a toy or a distraction. And then there were some kids who just really benefited from having that little movement. Um, Whenever I phrase stuff like that, that way, they never question it again and would even get protective of the student. If someone, you know, accidentally switched a chair that had a kick band on it and they'd be like, hey, that's that's not for you. That's for so and so. Um, when I was in college, I had a professor that put these little accommodations into such simple terms for me. And that's usually how I try to convey it to my kids now. Um, she asked the entire lecture what we did when we got a headache and she went around the room to each person and every person shared their go-to remedy. And of course the answers varied and from, you know, Advil to cold washcloth, take a nap, et cetera, and all these different things, um, putting on blue light glasses. And after we all went around, she pointed out that we were all trying to achieve the same goal and our headache. And we just went about it in a way that worked best for us. And that is like what made accommodations of any kind so simple for me to justify to myself and to my students, because it just puts it in a really simple term for them. And that's really what I go off of. Um, in the virtual setting, frequent movement feels even more necessary. So I will randomly stop them if we've kind of hit a lull and be like, all right, stand up, touch your left ear, do five jumping jacks, things like that, just to get them out of the monotony. Um, they think it's silly and fun. <laughs> They're like, Miss I, you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but it really does help us recenter for just that last push of math practice or the last paragraph or a text or whatever it is we're working on. Um, we also do tons of Go Noodle videos. I'm sure you do as well. Uh, and sometimes I'm just like, just jog in place to get your heart rates up for a second. Um, I also, I have a virtual Zen zone resource and I give them some opportunities to use that um, because it has a section geared just toward movement. So if I see a kid that's starting to, you know, drift from me um, in particular, and I'm not going to stop the whole class, I'll send that particular student just to take a moment in that movement section to re-energize. Um, yeah. Gold noodles, uh, <laughs> they go to a lot of times. <laughs> They're so funny sometimes. They're so random, but the kids love them. Yeah. 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 Every now and then I wonder like who writes this stuff. Cause <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, cat parties coming to mind and I'm like, who made this video? But it's yeah. so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like like you, I have these uh, you know, these little breaks, you know, before we do something. I'm like, all right, friends, uh, let's uh, you know, touch your hands, uh, hands up high. Or um, their favorite one to do is like, all right, shake your hands, and they're all shaking their hands. And then while they're shaking their hands, they're all paying attention to me because I always send it and give yourself a hug, and they all give Aww. themselves a hug, and it's it's cute because um, you know, sometimes these students don't have an adult with them, and so it's nice that uh, they're they're, you know, they're giving themselves a hug and they're, they're you know, comforting yeah, themselves. Absolutely. We do like air 
bear hugs, virtual hugs. So I'll be like, give yourself a hug and pretend that's me. And then they, you know, get all lovey dovey or I'll, I'll be like, give your brain a kiss for working hard. And they'll all like smack their brain, their head. Uh, um, that kind of gives them a little physical push. Uh, so what is this? Give your brain a kiss. What do they do? They kiss their hand and then they put it on their yeah. forehead. Or? I, um, after we usually, honestly, at the end of every subject, or if we like do a really hard math problem, I'd be like, give your brain a kiss. And they'll like kiss their hand and then touch it to their head. And even my toughest kids in the class are sitting there giving their brains a kiss. They love it. <laughs> it's so funny. Or sometimes I'll be like, give your brain knuckles and they'll like fist bump their head. And they think it's so silly, but <laughs> you know, just reinforcing that hard work should be rewarded. And, um, being silly with it, I guess. <laughs> this is great. I hope, uh, you know, these kids are older and they ever do come visit your classroom. I hope like, all you hear is someone <laughs> by the door and be like, give yourself, give your head a kiss. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I'm like, the parents in the background are probably rolling their eyes at how corny I am. My kids feed off of the cheesiness. So we really roll with it. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Embrace it. I mean, as long as they're enjoying and as long as they're learning, then, you know, yes. for it. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, yeah. So then the, the second uh, sensory system is tactile and we, we got to be careful with this one because some students are oversensitive to touch. Uh, they, you know, they might not like uh, to be touched in, you know, in a certain area or they might not even like certain touch of maybe certain fabric. And so mm-hmm. we need to respect these boundaries and, you know, teach the rest of the students uh, to respect these boundaries too. And, you know, it doesn't mean like, you know, have, you know, Tommy all of a sudden go up to, you know, Erica and just start touching her, like slapping her right. arms. Uh, so we, you know, teaching respecting boundaries, that's, that's a big issue, big thing. And I know whenever we come back, that's, that's something I really got to teach the students because Definitely. Uh, uh, this whole distance learning, I've been, you know, having students, you know, touch your forehead, touch your, you know, show your ears to, to this. So mm-hmm. when we're in person, I got to do them, got to teach them like, all right, this is only for yourself. Only touch your, your, your head, only touch your knees. And so, yeah, that's, that's one thing I got to work on. But on the, on the opposite spectrum, you know, we have students that do seek that extra touch. Um, I have students who like putting pretty much most everything in their mouth. Yeah. Students that, that, that request for squeezes as one of their uh, reinforcers or, or what they like during break. They like, you know, someone not hard, but giving a light squeeze on their, on their arm or uh, you know, on, their, on their backs. And um, mm-hmm. a few years ago, I had a student who asked for a scratch uh, massage. Basically he liked the feeling of, I don't know if you like the feeling about, you know, a, a pencil, like scratching, you know, scratching your, your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I had another student who requests for light squeezes on his shoulders or arms. Uh, and then eventually for the student, we got these like sensory pads, uh, that had these different textures. Some of them had kind of like the acupuncture texture. They just had these, these bumps, um, or this other one that had like these mini metal balls on the pad as well. So the student would roll their feet around on that. That's um, so cool. Uh, then for the students who like to put everything in their mouth, I had like the, the, like these silicone necklaces. I don't know if you've seen them before. Usually mm-hmm. they're, they're popular with, with infants. Um, the, these, 
necklaces or bracelets. And basically, yeah, they could just chew on these. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't really worry about them, you know, either hurting their teeth or uh, potentially <laughs> chewing off a piece because they're really hard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'd rather have them do that than them biting, like you said, the, the, the pen cap or biting on their nails and or the erasers of the pencils. Uh, but yeah, basically I had like a small buffet of these tactile, these tactile sensory items. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess like my secret go-to place was going to uh, my local hardware store, like uh, Lowe's. <laughs> I haven't and I, heard that before. Yeah. And so I would get the, they have these samples and I would get these like turf samples and I would put them you know, at the bottom of, of the chairs and students were like, they liked the feeling of that, the, the turf on their, on their feet. So I would do That's that. That's such a good idea. Um, I would also grab other samples, like wood samples, like the students, I don't know, they're just like tapping on the, on the wood or, uh, mm-hmm. they have carpet samples as well. Again, some of these kids just like the feeling of their feet on, on the fuzzy carpet. And so yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was my, uh, go to place. I'm, I'm sure uh, it looked, it looked bad. I would walk out there with 20 samples, but, uh, yeah. I'm going to have to try that. I never thought of that. Yeah. For, I mean, for you, how do you, how do you help students that, that need that extra sense of touch or they just really need, you know, need that to help them with their emotions? Yeah. Um, I love how you, you know, brought up the difference between the kids who are oversensitive and respecting the boundaries. Cause that's so important too. I myself am extremely affection, affectionate through touch with my kids. Um, just because that's how they've always been with me, um, in second grade, you know, they're so young and I feel like that affection and validation through touch is so important, especially when you're working with a child that, you know, may lack some of that tenderness in other areas of their life. Um, I myself, I'm okay with any kid who needs a squeeze. And so I preface, prefaced our year with that last year and the kids just kind of clung on to hugs. Um, last year, my entire class was very touchy and like tactile in terms of needing that affectionate touch as reassurance or sometimes even like safety. Um, anytime I was on the carpet with them or using math manipulatives with them, I would always have students who literally would stay more focused if they were like touching my shoelaces or ankles <laughs> or like making absent-minded patterns on my shins or on the carpet. And that never bothered me because it was like what they needed to feel secure and like have their hands busy. And I always knew that they were more focused when, you know, their hands were kind of working with something um, or untying my shoes and retying them. Um, But of course, you know, with touch, there's a fine line, especially at an age where they're still learning how and when it's okay to touch someone. Like you said, I'm definitely going to have to repractice that when the kids do come back, just because it's been so long since touch has been a part of our world. Um, But in my class, they could always hug me, always lean on me. um, But they always had to ask permission from a peer before they could hug. So it wasn't just like a free for all hugging. We had several conversations about boundaries and how what you might want or need to feel better may not match or feel the same for the other person and why it was important to respect that. So, but my kids, again, last year, they were super cheesy, super affectionate and touchy. So the answer to a hug question was hardly ever no. Um, and peer hugs usually always soothe the emotions or conflict at hand. Um, as far as tactility with hands, I had a sensory bin in my in-person Zen zone. Um, so I have a virtual one that I created this year, but last year it was all in person. So there were different objects for them to kind of fidget with. Um, one of the most popular was just this little kid friendly Rubik's cube that I got from the dollar store. And of course they're sitting there like not actually solving the Rubik's cube, but they're just kind of spinning the pieces. And that was like the go-to item if a kid just, you know, had to calm down from a recess situation or they would just go there and 
kind of play with it. Um, but anyone who would come, I had like these little linking things so they could just go and kind of like link things together or different textured things. I had a couple of stuffed animals that were different textures in there. And so sometimes they would just go in and like squeeze the animal and sit there for a few minutes before they could really come back to center. But yeah, definitely touch and tactility was an important thing and definitely something um, we're going to have to kind of relearn when we come back to regular life. Yeah, I like how you said it can be a little difficult for some students who might not understand, like, what do you mean you don't want to want me to squeeze you like a bear? Like it's a uh, it might be yeah, they might have a hard time understanding their likes might be different from someone else's likes. So. Right. Yeah. Luckily, last year, all of my kids were so like they just loved hugs. So we never really had any boundary crossing, but it was definitely something I wanted them to be aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess, so then our next sensory system is a propio- proprioceptive, which is basically information that we receive from our receptors and our muscles, joints, tendons, and ligaments to basically they help us with our body awareness. So best example I can think of is, uh, you want to hit a pinata and I think, in most traditions, you usually blind and, uh, you're going to just depend on your proprioceptors to help you find where the pinata is based on your remembrance of where it was prior to you being blindfolded. So basically you're taking into account the information from your arm, how far you can reach when your arm's fully stretched out. Um, you know, how you can adjust your arm if it's close to you, you know, if you need to bend the elbow, um, if sense of pinata is much higher up, then you need to raise your arms higher up as well. And so proprioception is also known as a uh, kinesthesia. And again, it's the body's ability to sense its location, movement and actions for my little ones. Um, some of our exercises is having them basically just touch their body parts uh, or their the facial features. And then I ask them again to see if they can do it with their eyes closed and basically see if they can remember where their body parts are without having to rely on you know, a reflection or watching even me uh, while, while I model it. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, that's, that's what I do. And I know, uh, what's it called? Uh, um, even I guess professional athletes do this as well when they, particularly soccer, when they kick a ball or do they, they, if they want to be fancy. They have like that no look pass or same thing with basketball players. They dribble a ball without looking down at the, the ball all the time or same thing with soccer mm-hmm. players. They don't look at their feet the whole time. And same thing in uh, special education, you know, we're going to encounter students that, they might need a little bit of help um, figuring out where their bodies are in, in terms of space, spatial awareness. Because uh, I, I have some students uh, before in the past who would constantly crash into the things in the classroom. Uh, and we try to address this you know, APE and they were constantly just falling down. But basically, yeah. So, I mean, other examples are students who use their hands, uh, you know, to grab or hold their hands al- along the rail, the rail when going down the stairs or up and down the stairs or even having their hand along the wall in the hallway just to help them balance and help them you know, be aware of where they are. Um, but some of the things I've seen is uh, I've used weighted blankets or, or weighted pads. And so basically with this idea is if you offer like these weighted toys um, for the students who are walking the hallway can kind of help them not lean so much on the wall. It's kind of give them like a balance. Um, and so the idea here is to help them calm and kind of cal- recalibrate for those students who might need it. Uh, you know, this it's, you know, it's not the students fault. I want them to learn and play and, uh, uh, you know, basically, you know, even for some students that when it comes to small groups and it's time for transitions, I also give them these options. Uh, 
some students have these weighted toys or these weighted blankets and uh, again, helps them out with the whole uh, proprioceptions because they might have a hard time going from one table to the other. Uh, I even sometimes provide uh, tape on the floor for them to follow the, the line where to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, um, you know, who you don't provide these strategies and, you know, to some of these students and it can lead to some meltdowns. Um, but yeah, I try to do I know there's certain students like that deep uh, touch pressure, again, like a massage, um, or even just again, having that weight on them. Uh, and then one of the examples for me last year, when we would go to our library, it was, it was a long walk. But when we go to the library, I would have some students, they just, they needed something to lean on or something to hold on. And so I would have them, basically we had this cart and they would just push the cart and it kind of help them walk in a straighter line. Um, same thing in the morning after breakfast, since we had breakfast in the cafeteria and then from the cafeteria, we head back to the classroom. Uh, I, I had this teacher case full of all this stuff that, uh, that would, I would bring. And so I had, you know, some students that would help roll my, uh, my, uh, you know, roller backpack to the classroom. It, it worked for them because, uh, they're, uh, again, that kind of helped recalibrate them and, you know, that they were still trying to work on their whole body awareness. Um, but yeah, for, for you, do you, I don't, do you ever have similar experiences for students who might need help with like their body awareness? Absolutely. Um, I definitely agree with you giving a task, like rolling the cart to the library, like you did, um, is so helpful and makes the student feel, you know, super important. Um, we did a lot of things to sort of work with our body awareness, starting with breathing and meditation, believe it or not. Uh, I feel passionate that getting young kids to just like be in touch with the control that they do have over their body by simply breathing is so important and valuable. Um, I have a book called breathe like a bear. I highly recommend it to any teacher, parent, grandparent, anyone, because it promotes these concepts in ways that are simple and fun for kids. And so we would usually do a deep breath together in the carpet for a few minutes. And anytime we need to recenter, just promote overall awareness of our body and mind and the control that they could exercise within that, we would just take a breath from these books and they were so silly and fun and quick. So they really enjoyed them. Um, the carpet was like our place to learn about body awareness because I would have kids kind of like sprawled on top of each other or, you know, having their feet out too far, things like that, where they were just in someone else's space one day I just kind of got frustrated with that and uh, started taping the floor off because I had a carpet you know how those carpets that have like the color blocks for each kid to sit in so my carpet didn't really have those clear boundaries so I taped my own blocks over like this home goods carpet that I had in my room and they each had a spot I mean I was like okay you have to sit in this little square space and then eventually we could pull off the tape um and they kind of knew where their space was um like i said previously i let them sit in whatever spot uh, they wanted to in the room to work but if it was independent practice then i was really strict about them being a leg's length away from a peer or something like that um I think that body awareness in the classroom space is all about routines and rehearsing those and having those clear expectations. I think in places like the hallways or recess or cafeteria using, you know, your library cart trick, or for me, it was, will you carry my water bottle for me while we walk to the cafeteria? Um, because it just kind of gives the student a purpose in their walk. And so they're so focused on holding my water bottle and making sure it gets <laughs> to the cafeteria safely rather than kind of 
flailing mindlessly through the hallway or not really thinking about how they're moving. They're just really focused on the task of getting this water bottle safely down the hallway. Um, yeah, I like that. I guess it's their, uh, it's their lifelong mission to make sure that water bottle. <laughs> yes, they, would, like, <laughs> they would argue over who, they'd be like, I want to hold your water bottle. Can I? I'm like, okay, well you're not today. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's something simple, but it's, it's quite effective. Again, just giving them something to yes. do instead of them, you know, <laughs> instead of competing with them, like swelling the arms or just, you know, running off to, to another area, just give them something. And, you know, they enjoy it because they, they I'm, in my mind, in their mind, like I'm helping the teacher. I'm so awesome. This is great. Yes. They're so important. And I couldn't get down the hall without them carrying my water bottle for me. Yeah. It's, it's a win-win because then my hands are free. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but then the, the, the last sensory system that I want to talk about is basically the, the visual auditory. Um, I put these two together because children uh, sometimes are over sensitive to sights are also uh, um, usually easily underwhelmed with sound as well. So the term here is sensory over uh, responsivity. So during distance learning, um, I have certain students that are sensitive to loud sounds. Uh, I have a dog, so sometimes I I do have her out of my room because she's a loud barker for um, someone who weighs 10 pounds. But <laughs> uh, And sometimes even other students, they, uh, they might trigger other students as well. For example, a student might have a meltdown and it could trigger someone else having a meltdown as well. So, Absolutely. you know, last year uh, there was a fire drill. We knew there was going to be a fire drill. And I had one student who I know is really sensitive to the fire alarm. And it's, it's extremely loud, even for me. So can you imagine how loud it is for them? Right. So basically I would have them cover the, the student would cover their his ears and he would start yelling. And basically his way of communicating, he, he was nonverbal, was he would pinch me and he would, that's his way of him telling me like, he doesn't like the sound, you know, please make it stop. Um, I, I tried letting him know in advance that, you know, at this time, you know, the, the fire alarm is going to go off. I gave him like a timer. It didn't work. So I learned from that experience. And so next time I gave him headphones to help reduce the sound and, you know, and it worked, um, for students who are visual you know, students who might not like, uh, students who might be sensitive, whether it's the glare that comes with certain fluorescent lights, um, or on the other side, you have students who, uh, are a bit un under sensitive, um, who might need more visual input, like making things brighter. Um, for example, I might make things certain brighter on when I present something on the screen or even in the classroom, I label certain things with a much brighter color to help get their attention. Uh, <laughs> things even like, uh, that, like, turning certain icons or documents um, or certain materials that I have from color just to black and white as well. Um, uh, just, you know, some students, there's just might be too much going on at once. There's just be too much visual clutter. And so I need to really get rid of everything else that we don't need and, you know, really just focus in whatever it is I need. Uh, I Best example I can give is like those I spy books. It's just, it can be visual over overload all at once. I find, uh, find a raincoat and there's just so many yeah. things that are yellow. Like, where's Waldo? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And same thing. I, I need to declutter, get rid of the stuff I don't need. Um, you know, it might be same thing like that. Maybe find that maybe the raincoat might be yellow and then have everything else black and white, you know, really help 
focus in on that. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, if we don't take these things into consideration, uh, I know my students, they'll, they will draw and they'll isolate cause it's just too much overload, whether it's a visual auditory, um, and it might even escalate the frustration and the aggressive behavior. So I try and take some of these things in consideration. Uh, again, if it's, if it's too bright, I might close the blinds or if I might get certain different lights. Uh, I, I do like having I, I bring my own lamps sometimes in the classroom just because I don't like the, the, the lights that are in the, the classroom that come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, for, for you, how do you accommodate for students who might be sensitive either to sight or sound? You know, I haven't really dealt specifically with these sensitivities, but I think that might be because I myself am sensitive to those things. So it, uh, it might kind of be handled proactively just based on how I move around in the classroom. Um, first off, I think there's a lot behind like color psychology that I think is super valuable when considering students with visual sensitivity. So my classroom is full of calm, muted blues and greens and neutral colors. And the simplicity really sets that calm tone so that it's not the visual overload that you described. Um, sometimes when I see classrooms that just have so much going on and so much plastered on the wall, it feels overwhelming to me. And so I imagine like students who would be sensitive to that would feel that way. Um, I'm also really sensitive to sound and chatter and I focus best with like classical music on. And so I've been this way since I was a kid and many of my students are like this too. Um, so there's definitely such thing as controlled chaos. And sometimes the most on task classrooms are full of the most noise, but that just didn't really work for me. Uh, and I learned this about myself, my first year teaching that I was really sensitive to like the chatter, even if it was productive chatter. Um, so I had a lot of kids with IEPs for attention needs. So independent time just really needed to be quiet with that soft music in the background to kind of set the tone of focus for both the kids and for me to be able to circulate and help them. Um, in the virtual setting, music and quiet are both still important tone setters for us, I would say. Um, I always ask my students if they would like, you know, quote, music with no words, classical music on before we start a work time. And nine, out of ten, nine times out of 10, it's a unanimous yes. Um, there are some occasions when they're like, no, I don't want music. I want to focus with the quiet. And I totally honor that too. Um, for my kids who don't ever want music, that's maybe two or three of them. I let them turn off their volume until whenever we're working to, like I'll send them the link to a timer. And then when the timer comes off, they have to like kind of keep an eye on it and then put their volume back on. That way they don't miss any directions um, or class engagement. Um, but this way they can kind of have that silence that they need to work. And my other kiddos can have the background music that they need to focus. Um, occasionally, if we're doing something that is a little more fun, I will let them vote in a poll if they want music with no words or like Kids Bob or Disney or something. At the beginning of the year, anytime I offered this option, the Kids Bob Disney would always win. But more and more, they prefer the music with no words. It's so funny <laughs> to me. Um, they kind of like turn into my little minions with the music. But they they just have gotten so accustomed to the tone that the classical music sets for their work day. And I have a playlist of music based on like it's all the top hits from, I don't know if you're familiar with like vitamin string quartet and like those kinds of um, albums where it's all the hits that they know, but like don't have words. So it's tranquil and like calming classical music. So Hmm. 
<laughs> so is your, is your playlist a bunch of K-pop songs then? <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's like like their favorite song on there, like God's Plan, like Drake is on there, but it's, uh, it, it doesn't have words and it's like with the violin. So like they're kind of humming the words that they know or like Sunflower. They love that one too, but they, but it's not distracting by having the words. Cause like for me, if I, if I'm working hard on something and I can't have like my favorite songs playing, cause you know, I'm going to sing them in my head. So <laughs> I, I like this, like I work myself with this music on, um, like at home, I'll just put it on because it's familiar and fun, but it's still calm and, you know, sets the tone for focus. But yeah, I think because I'm so nitpicky about that stuff, I haven't really had kids who are really sensitive to, you know, visual stimulus or sounds. And I think it's because we just address them at the forefront. Yeah, that uh, that sunflower song so catchy. Ever since that Spider Man movie came out, I know, <laughs> I know, I love it. And my kids, it's it's like a violin, and it's like dun, 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 like at the beginning. So my kids get stoked when they hear it. Yeah, uh, yeah, kids love that song too. They go, <laughs> they start humming. Yeah. The <laughs> they make that exact hum. <laughs> They'll like come off mute. <laughs> accidentally not accidentally totally on purpose just so i can like hear them humming so that they know so that i know that they know the song i'm like i get it like you can go back on mute i know you know this song but yeah oh uh, that's funny um yeah and then uh you know talking about self-management uh it's supposed to lead to a more productive learning environment uh you know where we can have students interacting not only with me but uh with their peers as well uh this is a lot different in the virtual but in person so i want students to help manage their emotions and uh you know when they see us helping them it, it builds that trust uh you know for example if a student's having a meltdown uh and the teacher's trying to help the student self-regulate um then the rest of the class you know might look at it as a you know the teachers is basically trying to shut the student up and so that the teacher can move on you know I, i'm not that kind of person i'm not like all right let's just you know let's you know shut this kid up real quick that's that's not me i, I do take the time to, to address it it's not something i want to rush um you know, and if you do have support in the classroom, if you have aides or if there's another adult, you know, t- definitely take advantage of that. Um, if not, then what I would say is, you know, have the cl- rest of the class work independently uh, on individual tasks or group work while you can pull that student aside and, and, and address whatever it is that, that needs to be addressed. Because if, again, if you just like, if you quickly, quickly trying to put like a bandaid on this and just not address it, then mm-hmm. it's going to lead to frustration. Um, and I want to build that natural trust with the students, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm here to help you out, acknowledge your feelings, acknowledge that you're not feeling good. Um, and you know, hopefully at least to that you know, better self-management and better outcomes and behavioral, uh, better out academic and behavioral outcomes. Um, for, for, for you, when say a student's having a meltdown, uh, and then you're teaching a lesson, how do you, how do you deal with that? Do you pause everything you're doing? Do you have the students trying to guess self cope or then you come back later on the student or what do you do? Yeah. So, um, this is a situation that I am extremely familiar with. Um, I had a student more familiar than I would like to be, but I had a student last year that, uh, would literally throw desks or roll on the floor when processing frustrating emotions. And in those scenarios, I never had an aide in my room. Um, 
And this particular student was retained in my class again this year, just because of um, the way COVID affected how his IEP was getting formed. And it just made the most sense because we had such an incredible relationship by the end of the year. And he had made so much growth in this area. But there were times at the beginning of the year when his outbursts were almost scary. And of course, my first concern was the safety of him and everyone around him. And once I knew I had a handle on that, it was all about getting him into the headspace where he could communicate what he was feeling. And, you know, this is quite a feat when you have a class full of children and no time to get more support in that instant. So these happen consistently enough at the beginning of the year, unfortunately, that the rest of my class was kind of able to tune him out and work on their work independently and really give me that space to stop and help them. Um, my general approach to behavior is that I don't really leave room for coddling. Um, but I believe that nurturing that emotion in that moment is so important, but like also making it clear that how they're acting, how they're reacting in that moment is not okay with you. Um, I'm pretty strict to the standards. I hold them to behaviorally and I don't talk to them in ways that um, I talk to them in ways that they realize their effect, actions are affecting me. So I knew this student didn't have the emotional self-regulation or self-soothing skills to come out of this you know, crisis mode. Um, but I really think that maintaining that standard of this is not okay with me is really what helped him grow out of that phase um, and know that you know, this is making me feel sad that you are reacting this way or that you threw something at me. And this student knew that I loved him and usually was just craving attention or affection or academic validation or understanding. So to break the cycle of these outbursts, I got to the point where I would calmly say, you know, I can't talk to you until you're calm because you're making me feel sad or you're making me feel worried. And at the beginning of the year, this would escalate him a little bit and cause further lashing out. So that was really hard and would result in consequences for them, for him, which it was really hard for me to give this child a consequence, knowing that he didn't have the skills to regulate this. And he would, if he could, you know, um, but once he got calm, even if that was the following day, I would always, you know, get down on his level, like kneel on the ground, ask him how he felt, what made him feel that way, explain how I felt in that situation. Cause I think it's important that they realize their actions affected the other people in this room. And, ask him what he needed from me in that moment and and why I felt the way I felt and his ability to reflect afterwards was amazing. Like he was apologetic and he would always kind of put the pieces together of what he wanted and why he wasn't getting what he wanted in that moment. So his reflection was amazing. Um, and I would always explain the ways he could have approached the situation differently. And then we would brainstorm a consequence together to hold him accountable for his actions. But it was very collaborative. I'd be like, okay, so how do you think, since this is not okay with me, how do you think we should, what, what should our consequence be so that this doesn't happen again? Um, and he was, he was very accepting of his consequences because he knew that he was being held accountable for his choices. Um, but by November, I would say the, I can't talk to you until you're calm thing. He truly knew that I would always come back to him to help him. So like you said, like building that trust that I was going to help him, but I wasn't going to until he could calm himself down. Um, so the sooner he calmed, the sooner he got what he wanted or needed. And I'm not kidding by November, no outburst of his lasted more than a minute. Like he would always 
immediately marched to our Zen zone. It was like this little area in my classroom and I had a sand timer um, where they would sit there for, it was like a four minute timer or something. So he would march over to the Zen zone, flip the sand timer and sit there and pull something out to like one of the tactile things or one of the stuffed animals and sit there to calm himself. And then he would always reapproach me in a completely different headspace um, by mid first semester. So if he came back to me calm and then his tone started to escalate while talking with me, I would immediately remind him that I can't, I can talk to him as long as he stays calm. And he would immediately dial back to that calm level that, um, so we didn't get to the point of hysteria again, but I'm telling you the Zen zone was transformative for him in so many ways and really gave him those self-regulation skills that he was lacking at the beginning of the year. Um, I have not had a single outburst from him this year. In fact, when others are sad or frustrated, he's the one reaching out to offer support. Um, so it's just been amazing to see that progress over the last two years. Um, I would say that the Send Zone resource is my support so that I don't have to stop everything I'm doing. Um, my students knew that they always had that resource as an option to decompress. And sometimes if someone got out of control, I would tell them that they needed a moment in the Zen zone before I could help them and then get my other kids started on something while that child decompressed at the Zen zone. And then when they were calm, I was able to circle back and figure out what was causing the outburst while my other kids were already started on something else. It's always the, it's always the best feeling when whatever you teach students, like what it's self-helping strategies and then they apply it to, to their yes. peers. Like they want to help out. Yeah. It's always the best it's, feeling. It's amazing. And I, at this student this year, I'm like, I can't even believe you are the same kid because he's such a leader in our classroom. And like, I think back to the first days of school when he was literally throwing chairs in the classroom. And it's just amazing to see him like really develop those self-regulation skills that we worked really hard on. Yeah. It's a, it's always a, you know, it's one of those moments where like, yeah, like what you think, and this is why, you know, I wanted to be a teacher, but yes, love those moments. <laughs> we need those. Yeah. I had, <laughs> I had situations where students having a breakdown and uh, the other student will be like, you know, it's okay, Tommy, take a breath, count to five. And they'll basically oh, tell the student. That's to, my favorite thing yeah, when yeah. they do that. It's so yeah. cute. And they'll be like, do you need a virtual now? Cause we're virtual. Do you need a virtual hug? And the kid's like, has the grumpiest face on ever, but he'll like shake his head. Yes. And everything's better after that. So, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I know sometimes, uh, you know, students, they'll have a harder time being upset at their peers. I've noticed that, um, you know, if I'm saying something, you know, they'll still be upset, but if they hear from a peer, I guess it's, it's more powerful if they, they hear from a peer. Absolutely. And I feel like I didn't even really realize that until scenarios when like recess conflict would come up and a student would be upset and you know how the tears go at, at that age at recess. Um, and when that like peer interaction would come or like, like I said, my kids were super, super affectionate. And so it would be like, do you need a hug? And coming from a peer, it just calmed everything so much quicker than if it was coming from me sometimes. Yeah. And then even going back to how, I guess you had your social contact with your student, like, you know, what, you know, what are, you know, what is, uh, what are my consequences? You know, I had to accept my consequences as opposed to you mm -hmm. know, telling the student like, all right, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you, you know, if you let them like be aware and take ownership, like these are my behaviors and this is, uh, this is what I'm accepting the consequences you know, what is the consequences that I think should be with this behavior. You really get that, that buy-in from the students and you know, they, yes, it's so important. I think that those debrief conversations with the particular student I was just mentioning were like what 
what brought him into this maturity of social emotional learning because he knew that it like he was making the choices to get him there and so he and he also knew it was like a collaborative conversation to make him better and hold him accountable for his actions so yeah absolutely that conversation and that buy-in super important yeah um and then for 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 me when uh i i like focusing on, on the environment as well um certain things can trigger uh Certain things in the environment can trigger students and I needed to assess the situation, you know, see what I can do. Um, you know, do I got to think, do I either remove the student from the environment or do I change the environment to accommodate for the students? Yeah. Do I have support? Uh, is there another adult in the classroom with me? It really depends on the student and, and the environment. So with self-management, I need to point out that, you know, certain strategies are, gonna, are not going to work overnight. Uh, you and I both Absolutely. know this. <laughs> it takes weeks, days, yes. months, uh, even the whole school year. Uh, but yeah, if you know, if we can get students to recognize when something <laughs> is difficult or bothering them, we want them to acknowledge it. And then you know, hey, you know, if they let me know, hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm upset, or even if you know, even if they're nonverbal and they have another way of expressing that through you, whether so it's a communication board or icons or sentence frame <laughs> or whatever, um, for them, if they're asking for a break or they um, they they want to go to in the classroom, I, I have a Zen Zen corner as well, and so. So mm-hmm. if I have them do that, then boom, that's, that's, that's a big success for me. I know you have a digital Zen zone. Uh, can, can you explain, I guess, how you use that? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I can't reiterate that this doesn't happen overnight enough. And I feel like I didn't know that when I was a first year teacher. So it's so important for new teachers to know that it you know, takes time and it, it's draining, honestly, to help a student cling on to the self-management. But the consistency in that time is really what will make the difference. Um, just stick with it if new teachers are listening. My digital Zen zone is based off of the in-person Zen zone that I was just kind of describing um, as my saving grace last year, behaviorally. Um, In person, it was a little space in my room. And like I said, I had a sand timer and different self-regulation tools um, to utilize based on what they needed in that moment. Um, It was not a punishment or a timeout. It was really important for me to maintain that because I didn't want, you know, emotional regulation to have any negative aura attached to it. Um, The Zen zone was a choice nine times out of 10 for my kiddos. Sometimes I would direct them there and let them know that that was their only choice in that moment to feel better, but they never took that as a consequence. Um, Once they got to the Zen zone, they would flip the timer, choose an activity. Uh, I have a full blog post detailing the activities and where I got them. Most of them came from the target dollar spot, but they ranged from like a positivity journal to the Rubik's cube I described, and then some yoga cards or a drawing page. Um, This space is really what gave my students that ownership of their emotional self-regulation and to put into practice the things that we had talked about whole group. Um, We did talk about these things whole group, but it's really, that's the place where they got to apply it independently and, you know, recognize that they needed a moment to take a moment. Um, It's so important. I think that kids feel validated in their emotions because if you dismiss a kid who's upset over something that happened at the playground, because it may seem silly to you, you're not recognizing that though it's silly to you, this monumentally affected a seven-year-old's day and you're telling him or her that that doesn't matter. So I think giving them that outlet and confined time to acknowledge that emotion and move forward with their day teaches them that it's okay to take a moment to regroup. So in the virtual setting where all of the frustrations of technology and, you know, a global pandemic are brand new, I found that this space 
of emotional autonomy was just really lacking in my classroom because there was just so much more whole group structure in a virtual classroom. So if I had a student feel frustrated over something, uh, I felt like I wasn't providing the proper space for them to express this frustration productively and it would ruin their mood or productivity for the day. And so I found myself, you know, quickly searching for a link to a calming go noodle or a movement go noodle mid lesson and sending links to the students in the chat box who just needed to take a moment away from the class. And that just wasn't productive for my time or for their time because I'd have to stop the lesson. And so the digital Zen zone is basically just a compilation of all of these different social emotional tools that we have used in practice whole group for them to utilize um, in those moments when they need to take a break. So they know how to get to it. Uh, I'm very strict about like when they're allowed to be on it, but they know that they always have that option if they feel like they need a break. And so some of the resources on the digital Zen zone, there's like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the art for kids hub drawing tutorials, but he's this awesome guy on YouTube who does quick little drawing tutorials and that just like taking a moment to do the art just is like a deep breath for them. So they have like a drawing page, there's a movement page, there's some deep breaths. Um, there's a lot of things on there that my kids have found productive and like applying those self-regulation skills, um, even though we are virtual. Yeah. I, I agree with you about uh, acknowledging the way students feel just because it might seem silly or small to, to you and mm-hmm. it means the world to them. Like it's the same thing, uh, you know, f- you know, as an adult, I mean, there's, I have a certain routine that I have for getting ready every morning. And if, you, if I don't have something, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, for example, I drink a shake in the morning. I, I like doing my shake. If I don't drink my shake, it might seem, you know, silly to someone that I don't have it. Like, Oh, you'll get on through the day. But for me, you know, I really it's, need it to yes. help me focus. Yeah. Yes, so. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's hard because Sometimes we like don't, we have to put ourselves in the perspective that there's seven. And sometimes I forget that, but like things that ruin a seven year old's day are very different than things that would like ruin our day, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like the, and then, you know, you, you talking about your Zen zone, there's a, I clicked on it. There's several resources and, uh, you know, some of the categories you have are breathing, yoga, read aloud movements and a mindful moment as well. Um, but my favorite one is the right link. Can you share or tell me a little bit more about that one? Yes. The right link is my favorite too. Um, it's just a really simple way for my students to communicate with me privately or share something going on in their life or kind of just get their thoughts out, um, through writing without interrupting or sharing with the whole class. Um, so I have a generic version of my Zen zone for any teacher to utilize. And in that version, it brings them to a blank journal page that they have the option to email to their teacher. I also have a personalized version of the same website for my own class so that when they click write, it brings them directly to a page that automatically gets sent to my email. So there's no outside links and no complication with getting the email sent. Um, Cause you know, seven year olds sending emails, there's, <laughs> there's some complication with that. Um, but I'm also creating these personalized end zones for other teachers if they want that directness through my TPT so that they can have a web page that sources directly to their email for students to share a journal with them. Um, the benefit of the, the personalized end zone is that you can choose class favorites or videos and categories too. So 
I'm hoping to get some of those out there this month. Yeah. Uh, anything that has like automations is great. Instead of having students like do this, then, then this, and yes. log into here. <laughs> yeah. Before I did like the automate, automated version of it, I'd be like, okay, now email this to me. And like I had 37 year olds staring at me, like, excuse me, what? So this definitely helps. But you know, for like older kids, um, like third, fourth, fifth grade, they can probably handle sending the email. Maybe I don't know. I'm a primary kids person, so I don't really know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, same thing with the loans. Anything that's uh, automated, I'm I'm happy. Like yes, yes. Um, and then I I like with that writing activity. So I like how students can vent the frustrations or concerns through writing, which is usually quiet and calm activity instead of mm-hmm. again, if you, instead of someone trying to brush it off. Um, I've seen examples where, uh, in a classroom, if a student's upset, I'm like I'll tell the student, you know, why don't you write it down, and then we'll talk about it later. That way, you know. I'm not ignoring their ideas. They they're writing mm-hmm. it down so we can address it at a different time. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the worst thing that could be is, you know, is someone say I'm upset and then someone's trying to calm me down. Basically just telling me, all right, calm down. Don't be upset. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. uh, and so the example with you have them, you know, write how they're feeling, you know, I'm feeling upset because of this, or I don't like this. And it can be your personal experience. Um, and you know, it's private. It's only, only you see it. Um, again, it gets emailed to you and that's great. So, you know, internalizing emotions like frustration and trying to, keep it in a bottle would only lead to a really, really big, you know, potentially loud outburst. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have the students express and share their feelings, even if it's not, uh, you know, directly in that moment to me, you know, if it's not you know, verbally, they can still express it another way. <clears throat> um, and I know it's not easy for students, uh, even with the population students that I work with, um, to recognize emotions that they're feeling. And so, mm-hmm. I teach them how to show their emotions and basically, uh, you know, I teach them that their emotions and thoughts, they influence their behaviors and actions. So say, you know, when I'm upset, I might, you know, clench my fist or I might crumple up a paper. I try and have them see that connection, you know, um, that way they can realize like, do do you want, do you want to rip up this paper? No, like, you know, then let's not, let's try and not get upset before that leads to that. Um, And so later on I can have them reflect and, you know, think kind of backwards, like, you know, why did you rip up your paper? And they're like, Oh, cause I got upset. And why did you get upset? Oh, cause uh, I, I didn't call on you to, to share your answer. So just you know, trying to help them think backwards and see that connection between, you know, maybe my behavior and actions. Um, but yeah, do, do you help students see the relationships, I guess, between their emotions and their behaviors and their actions? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely um, kind of the turning point with the student I was describing earlier that, you know, I had to hold him accountable to the actions and the emotions that were matching him. And, you know, my kids are seven and eight years old. So they're still in that age where they genuinely don't want the adults in their life to be sad or disappointed. So I, I know that is different as they get older, but they really, my kids aim to please in every capacity. And when they feel like they haven't done that, they get sad themselves. So I'm very black and white with my students in the debrief conversation, following an outburst of some sort, like you felt angry because of this. So you made this choice and this is how your choice affected me and you or so-and-so. 
um, let's brainstorm what action we could have taken instead to help you work through what you were feeling. And like, this is the emotion and really matching the emotion to like their actions, I think is important. Putting it plainly just helps them process how their actions affected others around them. And then it really becomes that collaborative conversation at that point. Um, we really need to give more kids more credit when it comes to being blunt because <laughs> they, they just, like, I feel like sometimes you kind of beat around the bush as adults and they're just so adaptable and they have this natural desire to be, you know, good as they put it. Um, like I want to be good today and just being blunt with them lays out the concrete missteps and concrete action steps for them to do better the next time. And they just truly want to be the best they can when we give them a specific pathway for that. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you know, these kids aren't trying to disappoint us. They're not trying to like make right, us upset. Right. They, they, they want that. They want that praise. They want to make us happy. They want the peers happy. They want to make their families happy. So exactly. Yeah. That's why like, I'm just so straightforward with my kids and it kind of sounds funny sometimes saying to a seven year old, but like, this is what happened and spelling it out for them helps them see like where they went wrong. If that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, and you know, even if we want to take this, uh, whole relationship idea of like, you know, between my actions and my behavior and you know, my emotions and you know, we can teach students how their emotions behaviors can affect others as well. Um, and so when I teach this, uh, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's a really abstract concept. Um, for them to, to understand is, you know, just teaching students uh, that your likes and dislikes are different from a classmate. It, it can be very tricky for, for students to understand. Uh, mm-hmm. I imagine the same thing with emotions, you know, just cause you know, I'm happy. doesn't mean this other student should be happy as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have instances <laughs> where a, a student is having a breakdown and then another student tries to encourage a student having the meltdown to, to use their, their technique to strategies that work for that student. Um, and it, it was, it was a powerful moment. Uh, cause the student was saying, you know, earlier, like I said, you know, count to count to 10 take a breath. But you know, in that particular instance, that particular self coping strategy doesn't work for that student. And so I, I thank the students. I thank you for helping out. You know, let, let me try. Um, yeah, you know, there's a, it, it's a very abstract concept, uh, for that. And, um, I, I try and work with this on students that, you know, your actions might affect the actions of others or you, you, you being upset can make another student upset. And I, I try, uh, try incorporate this during small group um, time, uh, again, trying to help them uh, identify certain emotions. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, how, how do you, uh, for you, how do you, I guess, deal with something like that where you help like foster relationships between students? Yeah, uh, I treat my class like we're a family. And so they quickly develop those communal relationships, familial relationships with each other as well. And kind of like we win as a team, we lose as a team and like we need to help each other kind of get to our success. So I really drive that home that when, you know, a teammate is down, we can be the support to help them back up. So my class this year is oddly even more this way than my class last year was with each other, even though we have never been under the same roof. Um, they're so cute when someone's like struggling with something as small as a math fact, there are kids in the box 
like chat box encouraging them, you got this. And it's so precious because I never prompted that, but that's just kind of like the aura of my classroom is like, we support each other. And I always recognize that support so positively, like, wow, I love the support you're getting from your peers right now. And that makes the student in the spotlight feel like even if they do get this wrong, they have their team support. And if a student appears upset on camera, I will have students checking on them being like, are you okay, Gia? Or are you okay, Jerry? And, um, or offering to like take their breaths with them. And it's just awesome to see them helping each other, how they've formed these bonds despite the distance of this school year. Um, I prop this by modeling what it sounds like to be a supportive teammate and always praising that effort to help someone else. So in my classroom last year, we had the same sort of thing. A lot of like, do you want to hug? Or I like to take bear rest when I'm upset. Do you want to try it with me? And like, we always had, this is so funny that this became a thing. We had these happy glasses in my class last year that accidentally got invented one day when one of my students was having a meltdown. And I had like a pair of Dollar Tree pineapple sunglasses um, and put them on him. And he couldn't help but laugh, even though he was in tears. <laughs> because he was wearing like these pineapple sunglasses for no reason. And from then on, we decided that since they like made him laugh, even though he was so upset that they were magic and the happy glasses can make you feel happy when you're upset. And so it stuck so much. And it was honestly hilarious to see a sobbing kid put these glasses on and, you know, instantly break out in a smile. And they really almost did feel magic. But a lot of times there were their ways of supporting each other would be like, Hey, like, let me grab the happy glasses for you. And, and just like kind of coaching them through that um, moment of frustration and supporting each other is just really important, I think, in, in my classroom culture. So I definitely have been encouraging that um, the last couple of years. <laughs> like that, uh, that image of a student crying and you know, <laughs> laughing. Uh... Yeah, it, it was hard not to laugh at those moments because they looked so upset and like tears streaming down their face, but they're like smiling because they know that they have these ridiculous glasses on, but it stuck. So we used it all year. <laughs> A situation like that, trying to give them a, I guess, a conflicting uh, task. Like, for example, uh, you know, if a student's banging, banging their hands, I'm like, all right, you know, hands up high, you know, they can't bang the desk with their hands up high. Or mm -hmm. same thing like that with the, you know, emotions, like they're crying and all of a sudden doing something silly. Like, you know, they can't be crying and, and laughing at something silly at the same time. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes you just need to like make them forget that they're upset yeah. for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, kind of like the whole, uh, that thing when, uh, parents say if you know if adult like falls down and they look mm -hmm. at the adult like should i cry or not but if you tell them no mm -hmm. you're okay you're okay then you know the child won't cry yes yeah. yes and they believe you yeah yeah like i'm okay <laughs> yeah oh okay uh, um yeah you know with social emotional learning i know it can be a bit overwhelming trying to teach all this to students uh i know and not everyone has a you know whatever the teaching preparation program this they might not get the chance to teach you this but um mm -hmm. it's if you can that's great because you know try and make a try and teach us with, with games you know games are a great way to practice these social and emotional skills and uh you know think of games that we can play ourselves like you know uno on board games you know these games require communication active listening patience and you know waiting turns same thing can be done in the classroom i have students pair up and play games and they have to focus and wait for their classmate to, to finish before they take their turn or even ask for help if they don't know what to do or they don't know the rules or repeating instructions or whatever the classmate said um so 
Yeah. If uh, even the situation where I, if a student might think the game isn't being played fair, then I have them express their concern, give them basically sentence frames like, I don't like it when, and then, you know, et cetera. Um, or uh, I don't like this, whatever it might be. Or even if it's something positive, like, oh, I like this game or I like you know, whatever it may be. And so try and build that classroom community with this and promote that empathy skills. And, uh, you can have games where students, uh, kind of guess their, they guess the likes of their classmates or even matching, um, uh, icebreakers in the beginning of school year that uh, when I was, when I taught gen ed, uh, you know, I would have students say their name and one thing, one interesting fact or interesting like about them. And then yeah. I had students match it. Like, all right, who likes to play Pokemon or who likes you know, plays basketball and they had a match. And so, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's one of the ways I try to help, uh, make a game with uh, social and emotional learning. Do, do you use games as well for social emotional? Absolutely. Um, I feel like they're, isn't a game that doesn't have some kind of SEL skill practice in it. So I would say, you know, we practice these things just as normal moments throughout our school day. Anytime we did some sort of game um, and th these were just an excellent opportunity for them to practice skills like self-control and processing frustration and patience and accepting a loss and fairness and all those things. So we would, another thing we do that, you know, could be considered a game. We would practice accountable talk. I mentioned this earlier by agreeing and respectfully disagreeing with each other's opinions. It's simple and straightforward. And they think they're like, playing a game by disagreeing with each other, but it also allows, <laughs> it also allows the kids to like practice having those stems to communicate how they're feeling and disagree with people in a way that's like respectful and productive. Um, and it gets them comfortable with knowing that it's okay for someone to have an opposite opinion of them. So yeah, games are definitely an awesome way to put all of that stuff into practice. Well, and that, you know, with that being said, um, you know, I need to emphasize to all the teachers and, you know, this as well as it's, it's not easy and it'll take time. So you know, please be patient. Uh, you know, yes. Take data as well. You know, if it's, if it's not working after a certain while, then you have this data to like, to let you know, all right, this strategy is not working. Let's, let's try something else. Let's be creative with uh, our approach to this. So, mm -hmm. yeah. and then you know, as we wrap this episode up, is there any advice I guess you would give to new teachers or those I even just thinking about entering the educational field? Yes. Be consistent and recognize <laughs> your students' wins and losses for what they are. I think just being blunt and straightforward is so powerful with young kids, especially. And I feel like as adults, our natural incl inclination talking with kids is to sort of, you know, make everything rainbows and butterflies. And that ultimately hinders their understanding of their own emotions and how to regulate them. So remove your adult emotions from these conversations and put it bluntly and praise the successes and point out the missteps. Um, I promise you will see success if you are consistent and follow through with what you say you're going to do. And I really believe that consistency and recognition are the keys to all areas of education and children in general, but especially in topics like social emotional learning. Consistency is really what's going to make those habits stick. Right. Thank you. And with that being said,